When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Doug Maurice and Scott Pasco, Ellis Williams under the weather this week. And this is why we have two Pro Bowl caliber running backs. We missed Scott a couple weeks ago. Ellis carried the load. Now missing Ellis. Scott's going to carry the load. Browns and Jaguars this Thanksgiving week. At Jacksonville on Sunday, Browns 7-3. and three. We're going to dive in a little bit on a familiar name and a familiar face and a new contract, but a Jaguar that Browns fans love for a long time. Scott Pasco is going to address that and what it means in the first half, and then I will attempt to be a numbers and film guy in the second half. We'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. It will be abbreviated. It will be less of a dive than maybe like wading in ankles deep into the analytics waters. But I'll talk about the, the Browns run game and Nick Chubb in the second half of the pod. But for now, we'll lead off and let him carry the load at Scott Patsko. Dive in. I've got to watch the tape. So you're going to be like the De Ernest Johnson of this crew. Oh, my I think. God. Is that and, it? <laughs> and I would doubt I doubted De Ernest Johnson from the start. Whenever anybody said, oh, no, I think they'll be. That's me. Doubt me. Don't believe in me. Don't listen to this podcast and think, oh, no, I think the format and the structure are good. Doug can slide right in and be just as good as Scott Nellis. No, I'm going to run out of bounds. I'm going to trip over my own feet. I'm going to go for negative yardage. And fingers crossed, maybe I can pop one for like six yards. Yeah, you're going to have one big play. I think that's it. <laughs> All right. So whole career. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So prior to the season, I uh, – <clears throat> During like July, I think it was, I ranked all the players that the Browns either let walk in free agency or, or just cut prior to camp. And I ranked them according to who the Browns would miss the most. And I had Schobert at the top. And I, I, I didn't feel like I was alone in that thinking. I pulled readers. I pulled Football Insider subscribers. And Schobert was, was overwhelmingly seen as the guy that the Browns would miss the most. It made a lot of sense. Uh, just, you know, he's a former pro bowler. Um, we'd seen him have success here. Uh, he was the most sought after free agent, you know, leaving the Browns. So, so putting him at the top made a lot of sense. So with the Browns facing Schobert, like you said, it seemed like a good time to maybe see if we were right. And we'll get into the money side of it. But first, I think we should start with how Schobert's doing on the field. Uh, he is leading the Jaguars in defensive snaps, uh, 98%, just like he did with the Browns. He's leading the Jaguars in tackles, just like he did with the Browns. Uh, in, that, in that respect, he's pretty much been the same guy. He's actually got 10% more snaps than the next nearest defender. The Jaguars have had a ton of injuries, so Schobert's not really being challenged for that. He has uh, 85 tackles, which is 20 more than Miles Jack, who's second on the list. So all that is pretty much what you'd expect Joe Schobert to do. However, uh, if you want to get into grading, his PFF grade this season is 47.9, which is the worst of his career. Wow. That's low. That's quite low, is it not? That is very low. As, as we've said before, 60 is the cutoff for backup level grade. So he's at 47.9. He's rated 69th in defensive grade among qualifying linebackers. 
Uh, his coverage grade is 38, and that um, is somehow not the worst on the Jaguars, but it's third worst. And remember, Schobert's a guy who was second among NFL linebackers in coverage grade just two seasons ago. That was his thing that he really excelled at the year after he went to the Pro Bowl. He was 10th in coverage grade in 2018. So that was something that, you know, even those two years put together, he was pretty good. And then, he, of course, that season he made the Pro Bowl. He was a replacement for Ryan Shazier. Uh, but this season is really turning into a repeat of 2019 for him. When, again, he led the Browns and snaps the tackles, but he was the heart of a defense that really couldn't stop anybody, especially on the ground. And that's happening again in Jacksonville. And only this time, instead of playing next to a rookie in Mac Wilson, who's trying to figure things out, he's playing next to Miles Jack, who, despite missing some games with injury, is probably having the best game, season of his career. Um, so that's where Joe Schobert is today. Um, really, him and Mac Wilson have kind of let, picked up where they left off in 2019 because Mac Wilson is still really struggling overall. I know he's coming back from an injury, but um, he's not a guy who's really built off the promise that you saw in training camp two years ago. Schobert is graded uh, last season, graded 59.1. Wilson was 41.1. Uh, this season, he's at 32. So he's kind of going backwards, too. So they're both really struggling. The Browns linebackers, meanwhile, you pretty much got a three-man rotation here. I mean, if you want to count Mac Wilson, fine, but you, you have Stoney Takitaki, B.J. Goodson, and Malcolm Smith, who are all ranked 20th, 21st, and 25th in PF grade. So there's a big gap between those three guys right now and where Joe Schobert is. But, of course, there's another side to this argument. Joe Schobert signed a five-year, $53 million deal. The Browns were not going to pay that for him. He's a $5.4 million cap hit, which put, put him – about 11th on the Browns this season, right in between Kareem Hunt and Jack Conklin. Obviously, he's not playing up to that to that contract. The Jags can get out of it after next season when his dead cap drops to like 7.2 million. That's still a good chunk, but it's not 16 million, which is what it would be this year or next. So by the end of this deal, if he makes it that far, Joe Schobert will count 13 million towards the cap. Miles Jack will be the same. So they will have $26 million wrapped up in two linebackers. That's obviously not the kind of position this Browns team wants to be in. They really went the other way in what they're paying their linebackers. B.J. Goodson's making $2.3 million. Everybody else is making between like seven fifty dollars and $900,000. Uh, they're either on a one-year deal or a rookie deal. So there's – I think the Browns are – the Browns are actually 19th in linebacker payroll, but uh, Spotrack.com, which is where we get these numbers, they count Vernon as a linebacker. So if you take him out, they're really like 27th in linebacker payroll this season, whereas the Jaguars are ninth. Um, different teams, different priorities. The Browns clearly didn't want to pay that much for Schobert, and he's not living up to that contract in Jacksonville. This is very difficult, and I think this discussion is important on several levels. One of them is we on the, the Tuesday morning Orange and Brown Talk podcast that's currently in your feeds. Dan Lobby, Mary Kay Cabin, and I had a discussion where Dan sort of laid out, hey, here's maybe seven Browns. What's the order of priority that you would extend their contracts? And we went through that and it was really interesting. And then my point was we got into another thing that I wound up like screaming and Mary Kay wanted to murder me. So if you guys want to hear Mary Kay Cabot grow increasingly frustrated with the screaming maniac, make sure you listen to that Tuesday podcast. I would highly recommend it. But these are the kind of the decisions the Browns have ahead of them. So I think there's value in sort of a positional analysis right now with Schobert. Hey, they're getting ready to play him. How's he doing? How are the, how are the guys they got to replace him doing? But there's a discussion about how you allocate your resources. And 
as frustrated as Browns fans probably are by the linebacker play this year, and we've talked about it a lot, at least it's cheap. It might be bad, but at least it's cheap. And what you can't do is allocate resources to a position that's not necessarily super important and then have the play not be very good. That is a worst case scenario that, you know, you you can question how much are linebackers. I mean, the Browns linebackers have not been good and they're seven and three. So I know there's a, but, but that's not, that's kind of the plan that, Hey, it's not that they necessarily thought the guys they were going to get to replace Schobert would be good. It's that they thought this is a spot on the roster where we can maybe take a step back, not pay as much money. And yeah, we want Taki Taki and Mac Wilson to be good, but linebacker isn't as important. Was this the right decision? Because we have to think about this. The great thing about the Browns is they have more than one good player. Now the tough thing about the Browns is good players are going to walk out the door of this franchise in the next couple years, because there's no way you can afford to keep them all because you're keeping miles Garrett for sure. And then you have Denzel Ward and Nick Chubb and Baker Mayfield and the guys that you prioritize, but some guys are going to walk out the door and the key is going to be, can you bring in the next crop of guys behind them, either in the draft or as mid priced or lower priced free agents and not have a drop off. That's the issue. But I think we need to try to learn an overall lesson here. Scott, would you say that the Browns not paying Joe Schobert was the right move? I do. I don't think Schobert was worth that deal. I think we're finding out now that the norm for him wasn't 2017. It wasn't 2018. It's probably the last, this season, last season, you know, he, he, he kind of just jumped up in, in level of play, especially in coverage for two years. And he has not been the same player since. And I think, yeah, that the deal is, I think is too rich for me. What, what I think a lot of people have a problem with is they look at the defense and they think, well, Andrew Barry didn't do anything to improve. And we don't know how much he actually tried maybe to get somebody better than BJ Goodson to replace Joe Schobert. Um, We know that they wanted other options at safety and this is what they ended up with. But I don't think you look at this and say, well, they, they don't care about linebacker or they didn't care about safety. They figured they could get by. I think Andrew Barry ended up, taking what he could get after really working on the offensive side of the ball. And and this is what you're left with. And, you know, the Browns, yes, they're seven and three. And we've talked before about the Browns defense and, and living off takeaways and, and miles Garrett and that, and this Browns defense is not that different than the Jaguars defense in terms of what they do. Well, uh, like they're better against the run than the pass. They don't get a ton of pressures. The Browns don't either, even though, uh, Miles Garrett has a lot of sacks, but the fact that you do have Miles Garrett sets them apart. The fact that you do get all those turnover, turnovers sets them apart and like limiting big plays, these three, these little things that, that just kind of put you at a, at a, at a position to, to win games that the Jaguars do not have right now. And, and then of course you have Schobert in the middle, of all this sucking up all that money. I'd be, I'd be shocked if he, if he makes it past another year, if, if, if he doesn't revert back to 2018 form. Maybe they catch him on the backside then. Right. Bring him back on like if, if the Jaguars cut him loose, the Browns bring him back on a Yeah, like a super cheap deal. It's like, listen, you're our guy. We knew you were always our guy. We just weren't going to pay you that much. So go get your money. It doesn't work out. Now come back, man. Come home. Come home, brother. We'll take you. It sounds like a plan to me. But Scott, I do. I have a proposal for the TV networks that 
they like sometimes to not just have the the color analyst draw with their like their their actual you know handwriting on the yeah. on the board. Sometimes they like to have like the computerized like little markers and write. What if you could, when you were pointing out players making bad plays, what if you had an arrow and you had their salary right there with it? So it was like, here's a $2 million guy missing a tackle, and here's a $10 million guy missing a tackle. Because I think the lesson is sometimes you're going to miss a tackle, but even as we analyze it, and maybe I'm standing up for poor Andrews and Deho, he's bad, but at least he's cheap, right? That's true. I have thoughts on this, okay? I have long complained about primetime football games when they introduce the players. You know, they got their little head in the bottom of the screen and they say, you know, I'm Tom Brady, Michigan, you know? I don't care where they went to college. Tell me something else. And this is actually something I thought about. Uh, putting their salary or their contract up there, like, I'm Tom Brady and I make, you know, X amount of dollars. Or, you know, I'm Tom Brady and and this is my – this is – my PFF grade or something, or just give me some information that tells me more about this player than, you know, some guys are saying where they went to junior high school. I don't care. This is, that's a perfect opportunity for them to give us some information that actually is usable. And I think that idea is great. Like they should have, like, it could even make it like a video game where, you know, underneath the player's feet, it's their salary, just kind of following them around the field as they move. So you always know, Wow, look look how much money made that tackle, you know? Yeah. Instantly you get that information. I'm John Smith. If my team cut me, my dead cap hit for next year would be $8 million. That's the kind of information I want in the, what kind of burden are you on the roster while you stink? So I do think it's, it's uh, this Schober point though, Scott, right? This is not, the end of this. These are the kinds of decisions that Andrew Barry is going to face that are going to, in a lot of, I mean, everybody, Miles Garrett's easy. Miles Garrett's easy by comparison. He's great. You throw a bunch of money at him. He wants to stay. It's over. That's easy. This is the kind of thing. And I, and I was saying on the, on the earlier podcast, if I remember this correctly, and I think I do, it felt like in, in training camp before the 2019 season, between the end of 2018 and the start of 2019, the three guys that people were talking about as, hey, are the Browns going to extend these guys? Were J.C. Treader, who did get his extension and they kept him, Joe Schobert, who they never really talked to and then he left, and Demarius Randall, who people were talking about and is like, hey, this guy. And Demarius Randall's like on a practice squad, I think, right now. He's barely hanging on in the league. And so if you looked at that, the Browns got that right. If the, you had three guys that the media maybe or fans were thinking about in the same basket, they gave the money to Treader. They didn't give the money to the other two guys. I think they went three for three on those decisions, and those are the kind of decisions that they're going to face in the future. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up some former players because uh, I, I kind of have a list here of specifically linebackers and safeties, and those are the two problem areas that we've talked at length about on this podcast uh, for the Browns. And there are a handful of guys that the Browns did not resign, did not want to bring back who left in free agency. Randall obviously is one of them and he's on the Seahawks practice squad. He's appeared in five games. He's played 25 snaps. That's a bad defense. If you can't get on the field for the Seahawks defense, I'm not sure what, what the issue is there. Uh, he actually and, signed with the Raiders first and, and got they, cut. They, 
Yeah, they cut him after like two months before. I don't know uh, what what happened to him. I like I have I have no idea. I have not read a story. I don't know if it's just performance. Is it something? Is it? I mean, he was a guy. It felt like when he got here for from Green Bay that Green Bay was kind of okay giving up on him. Maybe it was his attitude or something. I liked his attitude. He seemed to have a chip on his shoulder, and he made some plays here for the Browns. I, I thought he was a pretty good football player. I'm sort of shocked by what happened to him. Would you want Would you want Demarius Randall back right now in place of? of the safeties on this team. I mean, it's I, think be, I would, I would take him. Can they get him? Can they, what can the, what are the practice squad rules? Can they just sign him off the Seahawks practice squad right now? I think you can protect a certain amount, amount of players. There's more protection uh, options for teams now because of COVID and the fact that the practice squads have been, there's more veterans like him on these teams too, because everything's yeah. been expanded, but uh, yeah, it depends on, I mean, if he's playing in games, they might have him protected uh, for, for a few weeks here, but but I think uh, having Randall on the back of this defense and get, instead of Sandejo, I take it. That? <laughs> I mean, there, you're it's you're going to be hard pressed to throw out a name that I would not take over Andrew Sandejo. I proposed once he got his 15 yard penalty on Sunday for clocking a receiver for no reason when the ball was no was going the other direction, and he just decided to be a tough guy and get a 15 yard penalty. I proposed just playing 10. What's at least if you have an empty space on the field, the empty space can't get a penalty while it's not making, not making plays. So if you're running down a list of, and anybody is like, well, would you rather have this guy instead? My answer probably is a blanket. Yes. Well, I don't know. Well, Morgan Burnett's also on this list. And I think he's probably, I have to imagine he's unofficially retired. He was 31 years old when he was released in March. He had the the season ending IR uh, injury that put him on IR last year. He played well when uh, he was on the field, but he hasn't been signed by another team and that might be a stretch to uh, kind of grab him off the scrap heap and bring him in. But I have a feeling that you're all for it. <laughs> Who cares? I know. Now I got to say, now I feel bad about Zendejo. Now I got to say his salary. He makes, what's he make? I mean, he makes like a million dollars. So like, again, yeah. at least he's cheap. At least he's cheap. Yeah. But yes, I would take him. Um, the, the only non safety on this list uh, is actually Christian Kirksey, who surprise, surprise is on IR again. He has a pectoral injury. They started three games for the Packers and played horribly and then ended up on IR. So he's kind of a non-factor. And I don't think I didn't really get the sense that Browns fans were too upset when they did not want to resign him just from the fact that he played only nine games over the past two years. So, so that wasn't a big thing. One person that intrigues me on this list is Eric Murray, who was here with the Texans a couple weeks ago. Uh, He's a guy who can go back and forth between safety and slot and, Kevin Johnson, Eric Murray, maybe it's a wash, but uh, Eric Murray is a much better tackler. And again, the flexibility, I think someone who could go back and play safety would be huge for this team uh, right now. It's just kind of surprising that they did not bring him back. Remember, he was a guy who got uh, dealt here in the trade for Emmanuel Ogba. Would you like to have Ogba back this season? There's a guy, blast from the past, who's racking up sacks, but He's not the answer opposite, opposite, opposite Miles Garrett, but uh, his sacks would look nice opposite Miles Garrett this year. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, – it's hard. I mean, the good thing about this is Browns fans are very accustomed to playing this game, to playing the – who's Taylor Gabriel? It drove me nuts. It was like Taylor Gabriel was here for a cup of coffee and yeah. went and had like 31 catches with the Falcons or the Bears or something, and people would be like, how Falcons. could we let him go? Oh, my God, Taylor Gabriel. It was like, listen – Taylor Gabriel is not the difference between the Browns making the Super Bowl or not. I get it. But at least the part of this game is like, there's also guys who are new who they are glad they have, but it's, 
at linebacker and safety is where you can play this game mm-hmm. because they sort of in the offseason were grabbing random dudes. And so a little bit of it's like, well, if you had a random dude around, maybe you could have kept your random dude. And Schobert's not a random dude. That guy's you have to pay money for. Now you're in the random dude range. And again, we're going to rely on Andrew Barry to, to have a pretty good percentage on random dudes because that's going to be part of how you build this roster. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think, I mean, just for me, Eric Murray's, like I said, at the top of the list, he played 65 snaps against the Browns. He didn't do anything of note. But again, I think if you have him, you don't necessarily have to go out and get Kevin Johnson. Or even if you do, again, you have more depth and every coach would tell you that you need lots of defensive backs. And this was the case where I think uh, his flexibility would have helped. The only other guy on the list is Justin Burris, who uh, was like a practice squad guy who kind of worked his way into the lineup last year because of all the injuries. He had four starts, ended up playing 14 games. He played all right. He's on IR again, too. Like half these guys are on IR or or maybe just so injured that they almost retired. So there wasn't a lot to choose from in the back end of the, of the secondary for, for Andrew Barry when he got here. So you can kind of understand why they wanted to make changes, but um, the, the guys they brought in just obviously were not uh, upgrades to this point. So let me ask you this question. And, and I think this might change now. So when you're throwing around big money at Austin Hooper and Jack Conklin money talks, they can say why they wanted to be a Brown or whatever. It's just because the Browns offered them the most money. I mean, money, money is the deal. I feel like there have been a lot of these other players, and maybe this happens for other teams. And again, I, I always we have to keep up the context. We all we know this team. We study this team. Our listeners know what happens with this team, and so you know all the guys that were out there. Oh, we we thought maybe we we're going to get this guy, and we didn't get him. What happened? And that happens with other teams too. It happens around the league, but. It feels like to me that maybe in the past when the Browns were just in the mix for a guy, that there's a guy who's going to make $4 million and the Browns are offering four and a half and somebody else is offering 3.8 and somebody else is offering 4.2. And it's like, it's about the same. Maybe the Browns offer is a little bit better, but it's about the same. And then they don't want to come to Cleveland because why would you want to come to Cleveland? Because the Browns stink. The Browns are the least successful franchise by record since they came back. So why would you want to be part of this? So you lose out on the the top tier of the middle and you wind up with the bottom tier of the middle. And that's maybe where you end up was like, well, it's Carl Joseph and Andrews and Deho weren't our first choices. We had a list of 10 guys and we got guys number eight and 10 because numbers one through seven, we offered the right money and they just picked somewhere else. Now they're good. Now they're good. Now they're going to go into this offseason good. They're going to go in with a stable head coach. They're going to go in with, hey, we got Nick Chubb and Miles Garrett and an offensive line and, and Denzel Ward. And, hey, do you want to come be part of this? I wonder if they'll start winning more of those top of the middle guys because Cleveland will be a better destination because you're going to have a chance to come here and win. Maybe that's just a theory in my head, but I can imagine where winning breeds winning. And it's not exactly like guys in the NBA taking the league minimum, you know, to chase a ring with LeBron or something. But, you know, these guys in the middle, a lot of times if you have five or six offers, there's not much to distinguish them. And often you're a veteran. Maybe you're not at the end of your career, but you're in the back half or you're at least in the middle and you want to try to win. And I just think maybe they'll be more successful at the Joseph Goodson Zendejo plucking because 
they'll have a better pitch with a better record heading into this next offseason. I, I get that. I get that idea. I, and when you're talking about veterans, too, you're talking about guaranteed money. And, you know, that's a big deal to those guys. I think you, know, you still have players who are going to sign with Detroit or who are going to sign with the Bengals or teams that just have been bad, like the Browns, you know, for so long that I think what's working in the Browns' favor is that they have – they're like the defense. If you look at the defense, they're only X number of players away from being a good defense, right? You get, a, you, you get the right linebacker, you get the right safety and you get dealt it back. Then suddenly that whole, everything shifts. And, and you've gone from a team with a lot of holes on defense, a team with a lot of, a lot of core players that you're building around instead of just basically two at this point. So I get that. I think, you, you can look at it that way, but at the end of the day, man, it's all about money and guaranteed dollars. And I don't see there being a situation where guys just want to latch on and win necessarily. I don't get that sense from the NFL after covering it for, you know, X amount of years at this point that, that you're going to see that a lot. Come to Cleveland. We're going to win. Come to <laughs> Cleveland. We're going to win. Here's the thing too, but you can't, the Browns at the front office has an idea of how you want to allocate resources. You can't just start throwing money at linebackers because your linebackers didn't play well. If that's not where you think you want to allocate resources. So let me, let me force you into an answer here a little bit. I think you've covered this to some degree in the past. We know Joe Woods might want to play three safeties at times, right? If he had them. So let's, we'll take the four defensive linemen and the two corners. So those are six spots we won't worry about, but I want to, let's talk about three safeties and three linebackers that, you're going to move guys around a little bit. And I understand they may even rotate a little bit more, but let's say if you could get three linebackers, you really rely on and believe in and three safeties, you believe in. If that would be the goal for next year's roster, how many of those six guys of the three safeties and the three linebackers are on the roster now? At least two, but is it any more than two? You're talking about Harrison and Delpit. Are you counting Delpit? I'm counting Delpit. Let's assume that that's a bad injury, but let's assume that that works out and he's back. Is there anybody else? Yeah, I think I said uh, in the in our, our post game show uh, on Sunday night. I outside of Jacob Phillips, just because they drafted him, I don't know why any of the linebackers why if there's really a good argument for bringing any of the other guys back. Partly because the, you know they're either on a one year contract or they cost nothing to let walk, like Wilson and Taki Takis. At the same time, it costs nothing to keep them here. So you know either way. But yeah, I would say Harrison and Delpit are probably the two guys that you're going into next season expecting them to have an impact. I, I don't look at any of the linebackers that way. And maybe you keep Taki Taki as uh, your fourth or fifth linebacker, right? I mean, maybe, like you said, it's like doesn't keep that count that much to, to keep him and he'd at least know the system and that kind of thing. And if somebody got hurt, but as a plan for who's going to play a bunch of snaps, maybe you're winding up with three different linebackers in 2021 than what you have now. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it, it's not realistic to think that they're going to cut everybody and like stock the linebackers, totally new people. They're going to want some continuity there. So they're going to want depth. And so, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Malcolm Smith comes back, maybe Taki Taki, but I think you have a different middle linebacker. You have a different guy who's in charge of that unit. I don't think it's BJ Goodson next season. And again, he's on a one-year deal. So yeah, there's, but again, if you're bringing anybody back, it's for depth and we don't know what Jacob Jacob Phillips can do yet. Uh, he's been injured, and when he's been healthy, I mean, you think he had three snaps on Sunday. So he's not shown anything, at least game-wise, that we've seen. They're, they're watching him in practice, but uh, 
hasn't given me any reason to think that he's somebody they're going to count on for next year yet. All right. So let's get back to this Jaguars defense that the Browns are going to face on Sunday. Uh, as you said, again, I mean, there's lots of teams that have problems on defense. The Titans have problems on defense. The Bengals have problems on it. I mean, like that's, this is not unique to Cleveland. So what do we expect from this Jacksonville defense as a whole and how the Browns might go about attacking them? <laughs> the, uh, the Florida times union, which is the, the big media outlet in, in Jacksonville, they did a mid season uh, report on the team a few weeks ago and they gave the defense an F and the, the beginning of the section on the defense started this way. This is a nightmare that shows no signs of going away. Oh my That's God. how it started. <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I'll elaborate though. Uh, and like I said before, they, they are really like when you look at the stats and where they rank in things and DVOA and PFF grading, they're really not that uh, they're pretty similar to what the Browns are, but they don't have miles Garrett who, like I said, has more sacks than the entire Jaguars team. Jaguars have nine sacks this year which is lowest in the league. They don't get a ton of turnovers. I think they only have 10 uh, takeaways. And then they don't limit big plays, which is a big thing that, that we'll get to in a minute for this, for this matchup. But the Jaguars are 30th in average yards per game allowed, 24th against the rush, 29th against the path, 30th in points allowed. So they're pretty much at the bottom in just about everything. They're giving, they were giving up 31.4 points a game halfway through the season, only nine teams in the NFL modern era since 70, basically that have allowed 30 points or, or more over an entire season. They're down to 29.8, but the Browns can certainly boost that back up. They got a shot at, you know, joining an elite group here or or a sub elite group. I don't know how you would phrase that. Yeah. Anti elite group. Yes. Yes. Uh, PFF grades are 13th against the run 30th versus the pass. They're last in pass defense uh, when measured by DVOA. So, Pass defense, I mean, it's, it's very similar to the Texans, which the Browns really didn't get a chance to test because of the weather. Uh, they're also similar to what the Cowboys were when they faced them earlier this season, and we saw how well the Browns did with that. The Browns are going to try to run the ball, though. I mean, that's their identity. Um, but this is a game where Baker Mayfield, I think, can really have success uh, for a couple reasons. Five quarterbacks have passed for 300 yards against the Jaguars this season. I don't see Mayfield doing that just by the nature of how the Browns work, but the fact that those yards are there to be had are in his favor. And also the Jaguars have given up 36 explosive passing plays, which is the, that 10 plus 15 plus yard range on defense. That's the fifth most in the league. They also give up a lot of explosive runs, even though they're pretty good against the run, they do give up big plays. And as we know, that's kind of how this Browns offense lives in terms of Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb. They live off open field yards, which are those yards, those, those runs of 10 yards or more. Chubb is second in the NFL in that category. Hunt is second. Chubb is third. Together, they have 44 runs of, of 10 yards or more. Uh, so even if, you know, you, you get what we've seen a little bit of over the past few weeks where they're just kind of hitting the wall for three quarters – those runs are going to be there and they're probably going to be there a little earlier than the fourth quarter. Uh, the way they, they have during the last couple of seasons, uh, as far as the red zone goes, Austin Hooper, Harrison Bryant, David Njoku. Uh, one of those guys is going to get a touchdown. The, the Jaguars are tied for the league lead and touchdowns allowed by tight ends with eight. And again, this is where Joe Schober factors in. He's got the most coverage snaps of anybody on the Jaguars and he's really playing bad in coverage. Uh, so, getting those tight ends in matchups where he either has to cover them or try to pass them off to a safety. 
that's how you get guys open in the red zone and uh, and the Browns can take advantage of that. We should note though that, and I, and I touched on this before, the Jaguars have really been devastated by injury. They lost pretty much their entire secondary against the Steelers. Uh, defensive end Josh Allen, who's been their best uh, pass rusher this season, he has 22 pressures, which isn't great, but it's the best the Jaguars had. He's out uh, with a knee injury. He's not going to play this week. The Jaguars are probably going to have a fourth round pick at corner who played two defensive snaps before last week and an undrafted free agent who had never even been on the field before last week. So this is the defense they're up against. Not only have they performed bad, but they're also down to backups to backups and really in a bad place. So I think this is the kind of game that the Browns offense can use to bounce back. They're not just going to walk on the field and win, but I think that everything's pointing in the direction of you, you do ask like, when have we seen a Browns complete game? I remember you asked that Sunday night, this, this is that game. This should be that game because the Jaguars are, are that bad. And they're trying to get Justin Fields. So they, uh, they are, they have one win and the jets are just laser focused on going Owen 16 and getting Trevor Lawrence, but Jacksonville is, is smoothly in that second spot right now. And I, for a couple of weeks was, was on the Jake Luton bandwagon of, you know, he had replaced Gardner Minshew and it's like, Hey, you know, whenever you have a, a quarterback who doesn't, who's trying to win games so that his team cannot draft his replacement. So that's great motivation. And I was in on that guy and he threw four picks last week. So, yeah. so that is not it for the Jaguars. But the next time that the Cleveland Browns face the Jacksonville Jaguars, whenever that is, I would fully expect that their quarterback is, is current Ohio state quarterback, Justin Fields. I'm, Rather certain that Fields will be the number two pick in the draft. I don't know if somebody, somebody else would make a godfather offer to could try to jump up the way, you know, the Rams and the Eagles way back when traded up for Jared Goff and Carson Wentz. So that's on the table. But this is a team in in search of a lot of things. Back on the on the Browns offensive side of the ball, I think we've all been interested in what the passing game is going to look like after Odell Beckham. We know the the weather's been weird ever since Odell got hurt. But last week, Kaderil Hodge three catches for 73 with a 42 yarder and Rashard Higgins, three catches for 65 with a 43 yarder. And then Jarvis only got targeted twice last week. He caught them both, but Jarvis Landry two for 23. I thought that was a little peak and that there were moments, you know, Baker hit Higgins deep down the middle when he had him, they had the shot and they hit it. He hit Hodge down the sideline. They had the shot and they hit it. That was a little window, I thought. And we've all wondered, you know, how are they going to stretch the field? None of those guys are Odell. But I would be, I'm very curious. I think we all are, Scott, in them kind of working that out. What did you think of the little bit we saw? Just basically two big plays that Higgins and Hodge each had one big play. What did you think of those two moments last week? And, and what do you think we might see from those two guys against this lousy defense on Sunday? I mean, that's what Richard Higgins does. He makes big plays. He may, might not make a ton of them, but he always just seems to come up with those plays that you're going to remember. So we know what he can do, and we know he can do that. I think seeing Kadero Hodge come up big in some spots is big for the Browns because that's a guy who probably needs to jump, you know, bump up his level of performance to help, you know, alleviate the loss of, of, of Beckham a little bit. So seeing him do that was good. I think you saw him try to get down the field a little bit, even on, on, uh, I don't know if they threw it to him or not, or if it was, there was contact and maybe the ball was overthrown, but he, they're trying to get him deep. And I think Ellis has talked about that too. Like he seemed to be 
the guy who would take over that role. So we saw that a little bit, but again, the weather these last couple of weeks have really limited how much they can do that. I was, there was one point in the game, I think it was the third quarter where I texted Dan Labby and Mary Kay and, and it was said, is, is Jarvis on the field? Because it was like he had vanished a little bit. And he, at that point, I think he only had one target. Uh, and then a couple of plays later, he had the, the carry where he pitched it out to, to Chubb. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, he had, a, I think, a catch after that. So that was surprising that we didn't see more from him, especially after what he had 11 targets against the Raiders. Uh, since then, it just hasn't, hasn't been that way. I, I'm expecting to see more of him in the run game like that, though, because I think Jarvis Landry can do that, and Odell Beckham could do that. And I think right now, when you look at this roster, at the wide receivers, Jarvis Landry is probably the only guy who could probably do that consistently. So maybe, maybe he's a bigger part of, uh, of, of the weird stuff that they're going to do in the run game as opposed to maybe making him the focal point of the offense in the pass game. I, I don't know. I think good weather will maybe give us a clearer picture of this, um, but I was kind of surprised with how few targets he got. When Jarvis ran that, that play where he did the option pitch to Chubb and we know the throws that Jarvis has made this year and then we saw – Taysom Hill start at quarterback for the Saints with the Drew Brees injury. They played him instead of Jameis Winston. I'm imagining a world where Jarvis Landry reinvents himself as a Taysom Hill style quarterback where he can throw, but he can run. You can throw it to him if you need to. Right now, he's a receiver who can throw. That's that's out there for Jarvis if he wants to go down that road. I think Jarvis Landry could be the next Taysom Hill. I think if he was a rookie or in his first or second year, you could probably convince him into that role. But at this point, you know, he's so far down the road and as a receiver and he's, he's set records as a receiver. I don't know. I, I think that's, that's kind of neat to think that, I mean, you do have that guy there. Although, I mean, Kadero Hodge, he was a quarterback at Alcorn state. He was a, uh, a college recruit as a quarterback. I'm waiting for that throw. I'm waiting for the Kadero Hodge pitch and he throws it to Landry or Higgins for, for a touchdown or a first down or something. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Stefanski talked about how this uh, – actually, I think it was Van Pelt talked about how they are going to put in some new schematic things here the second half of the season, and I'm wondering uh, how much the weather has really had them pull back on that a little bit. But, hey, if it's more, if it's more versatility from Jarvis Landry, I'm all for that. All right, so that was our first deep dive, focusing on sort of the decision at linebacker for the Browns and, and how that worked out. I think Browns fans will like seeing Joe Schobert. They'll be excited to see him on the field, but then once the game starts, they might be glad he's in the other jersey. Uh, so we'll see how that works out. All right, here I'm coming. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try. I'm not going to call it a deep dive, a shallow dive. Coming next on the Browns run game on Gotta Watch the Tape. All right, Doug Maurice, Scott Patsko. Make sure you are subscribed to the Orange and Brown Talk feed. If you're finding this Gotta Watch the Tape, you want everything. You want it all. Five days a week of, of Orange and Brown Talk. Mary Kay Cabot, Dan Lobby, the other rotating cast of characters from our Browns coverage. And then Tuesdays and Fridays and normal weeks, Tuesdays and Fridays for Gotta Watch the Tape. This week, because of Thanksgiving, this will be our only Gotta Watch the Tape because we're going to eat some turkey with our families on Thursday. So this is getting you ready for the Browns and the Jaguars on Sunday. And now I'm going to talk about the Browns run game. Doug, try to dive in sort of on Gotta Watch the Tape. Okay, here's the deal. The Browns sometimes are not as good running the ball early on and then very good running it later on. 
The end. That's my analysis, Scott Patsko. I, I worry about this sometimes. It's like, I think I, I wrote about this on Cleveland.com on, on Tuesday. And it's like, hey, I, I figured this thing out. And it's like, hey, genius. Your theory is like, it might take a while for the run game to work. The run game's going to come around in the fourth quarter. That's like the foundational principle since football was established. Keep running the ball and wear the defense down. Great analysis, dummy. And I get worried that people read it and think that. But I still thought this was pretty hardcore, like a pretty specific example of this, that you mentioned Chubb's 10-plus runs, right? Yards of 10-plus. I looked at 20-plus yards. He's only He only has 96 carries. He leads the league in carries of 20 yards or more with eight. Derrick Henry is second with seven. He has 220 carries. So that Chubb has... Eight carries of 20 yards or more is pretty nuts. And six of the eight are in the second half. And six of the eight are on his 15th carry of the game or later. And so I know it's obvious, Scott, but also cool, right? Is it kind of interesting? I don't know. A little bit? Throw me a bone here, man. No, I think it is because I think this this running game has kind of taken on the it's, – it's become Nick Chubb. It's, it's kind of emblematic of what he is as a runner because – he gets stuffed a lot. He is a boom or bust running back. You know, that's why he has had so much trouble in the red zone, uh, in goal to go situations, pounding. And it's why you see Nick uh, Kareem Hunt down there more than Nick Chubb. For whatever reason, Nick Chubb does not excel in those situations, but he's going to break big runs. And he's had ever since he got into the league. So you just, you know, it's a waiting game. It, it's going to happen. Um, I think it's going to happen a lot more than normal this weekend <laughs> against the Jaguars. But whoever you're playing against, he's going to get those runs. And this whole Browns running game, over the, especially over the past three weeks, and again, like, it's hard to quantify how, like, how the weather impacts all that, even in the run game. But it clearly had some sort of impact, even when Wyatt Teller came back. So by the fourth quarter, those runs were there. But I think that's just what Chubb is. Obviously, they want to be something different. They want more consistency. Maybe that's where, you know, that's how Kareem Hunt maybe fits into this a little better because he's not necessarily that guy. He's the guy who can kind of consistently churn out five to seven yards. But Chubb's going to get Chubb's going to get dropped. He's going to get dropped for a loss. You know, there's the first quarter of the of the game against the Eagles where I think it was three or four straight runs. They got nothing. And people wonder why he sometimes has low PFF grades. It's because it's because of that you're going to run into the wall and get nowhere for, for three quarters. And then you're going to hit two big runs and everybody remembers those two big runs, but overall, this is what you had. You had somebody who really struggled and then, you know, ended up having 110 yards because they had a 50 yard run. And I can be critical at times. I think we all can be of running backs who sort of pad their stats in the second half. And if it's garbage time, but this is the opposite of that. This is when Nick Chubb is doing this in the second half. He's not doing it when the Browns are up like 35 to six. He's like winning games for them in the second half or ceiling wins where they're ahead by a score and they, the game is still in the balance and he's putting it away. So that's why I think like, I think it can be frustrating. He had seven carries for 15 yards in the first half against the Eagles. And it's like, what is happening? But it's like, there's a payoff that there it's, Sometimes you think, well, is the payoff coming? And part of my point of what I wrote is the payoff is coming. There's not a question. It's happened in every game. He's only played five and a half games this year. 
And so he's only played five second halves and he has a run of 20 plus yards, like in every second half, like it is coming. Don't, don't question it, believe in it. And, and so if you're watching those runs early on where he's getting a yard, he's getting two yards, maybe you have to punt, maybe you need Baker to make a throw to keep a drive going, whatever it's in service of something else. And I don't mean that to be a cop-out, but I think it's an explanation because I think you believe in Chubb as a runner. I think you believe in this offensive line. And I think Stefanski was talking about it after the game Sunday. You believe in Kevin Stefanski and Alex Van Pelt and Bill Callahan as offensive minds who are figuring out the best way to try to run it, right? And that they are going to figure it out. And then once they figure it out, Chubb's going to pop something. Yeah, and I think working against the Browns a little bit is the fact that everybody knows they want to run the ball. So you're seeing a lot of eight-man boxes, sometimes nine-man boxes, and it's become increasingly more difficult to get those yards. And that's where, like you said, the coaches uh, have to scheme in a way that uh, you're using that to your advantage, whether it's um, you know maybe going more wide, uh, which I think Stefanski talked about uh, against the Eagles, or are using that on bootlegs and play action, stuff like that. But in fact, Nick Chubb is like, He's like Jim Tomey was with the Indians. You know, he strikes out a ton, but he hits a ton of home runs. You want to get him to the point where maybe maybe he's uh, not a, not slapping singles around, but he's not striking out so much. And for him not to do that, though, he needs help. And, you know, whether it's from the offensive line or the tight ends and the coaching staff, and everybody has to create situations where Nick Chubb can be successful and be a little more consistent. You still want those big runs, but you don't want to end up with, you know, second and seven and third and, six all the time. I only looked at the five games where Hunt and Chubb were together for the whole game. So Chubb missed yeah. four games, plus he missed the second half against Dallas. The five games, because that's who the Browns are when you have them both. I think we've seen that when they don't have them both, they aren't really quite the same. It's great to have the other one, but what makes them go is both and the way they keep each other fresh mm-hmm. and the way they complement each other. So in those five games, in the first half, Chubb and Hunt combined – in those five games, 66 carries, 311 yards, 4.7 yard average. In the second half of the five games where they're together, Chubb and Hunt combined 95 carries, 583 yards, 6.1 yard average. So they pop some of those big plays, but they run it more, right? Sometimes it's, you know, the Baltimore game, they were running it and it's just because they were getting blown out. But most of the time it's when they're trying to salt away a game and it's just a it's just a formula. And of course, you're right, Scott. Of course, you'd love to see them. You know, when you're working it out in the first half, it'd be nice if there were more four yard runs instead of one yard runs, because second and nine is tough. No matter what quarter you're in, and it's not ideal, but you could see and it's it's again, this is when I get da- when I get in trouble on film. I just rewatched it like 10 times the Chubb big run to put it away against the Eagles. And it was that wide zone and they just get wide and you could see there was that guy, the guy with the Eagles, the linebacker with the mullet. I don't know. He has like a Fu Manchu and a mullet. He had like, yeah. felt like he had a million tackles. And there were a couple plays early on where, you know, you could see Teller and Batonio trying to get out with, you know, trying to get out to the second level and get on some of these guys. And sometimes you could see these guys maybe slipping off blocks and blowing up some plays early on. And on that run, Teller gets to the second level and just wipes that dude out, practically pushes him into the sideline. And on the game pass, the, the coach's view, it's 
with Chubb coming at you. So it's the cameras facing the Browns that you're not seeing the back of the offense. You're seeing the, the faces of the offensive players. And so you can't see Chubb. You just see Batonio's got his block and Treaders. Everybody's got their block and Teller wipes that, that mullet guy out. And then, and then Chubb emerges in the cutback lane behind it. And again, it's like ballet. Like when it's working, it's like ballet. And it's like, okay, it didn't work that way every single snap in the first half. And they, frankly, I don't know, they ran a ton of, ton of run plays that were designed exactly like that. But they, they got it figured out. And then right when they needed it, it was everybody doing their job. And Chubb, man, that cutback lane that he, he just lets everybody get wiped out to the side and comes in back behind it. And man, it's beautiful. And it's like, okay, if it took you three and a half quarters to get to there, okay, it was worth it. It was worth it. And it wasn't a surprise. It was almost inevitable. Like you felt like, well, that's probably coming. And it did come. Yeah, I think Teller also wiped out like three guys on Hunt's uh, touchdown run. Uh, He was a big part of that too. Uh, But I think this uh, really speaks to Kevin Stefanski as a coach and the fact that he's willing to stick with it. And, and keep going with the run. Look at the Eagles. They they were running great in the first half. Miles Sanders, like six yards of carry in the first half. Uh, Boston Scott, over five yards. And in the second half, Scott doesn't get a carry. Miles Sanders has like four or five carries, and, and that's it. And it's not like this game was out of hand. You know, they, they, they went down, down by two scores about midway through the fourth quarter. So there were opportunities to keep running. But the Eagles didn't do that. And we've seen the Browns fall into that trap before where – Maybe something wasn't working so great early on, and then it's just drop back and throw, and let's see what Baker can do. But that's not been Stefanski. You know, in these games where it's really been a tough go running the ball, he's kept with it, and, you know, he's focused on what he wants to do on offense, and he knows that at some point this is going to work. And they're 7-3 and three because it always eventually does work. And, again, not that we haven't talked about this before, and, Scott, you've been on this from the start, all offensive linemen. Guard, center, tackle, all offensive linemen in the entire league, number one run blocking grade, Wyatt Teller. Not mm-hmm. just guards, all offensive linemen. That's how good this guy is. And Conklin, Batonio, and Treader are all in the top 20% of run blocking grades among all offensive linemen. So they've got the guys in place to do it. So that was two and a half stats and one play on film. That's all I got. That's all the deep, that's the, as deep as I can go. That's hey, that's the Ernest Johnson right there. That's that's all you need. You know, it was just enough. It was that that key third down run that that kind of kind of pulled the car into the into the driveway at the end. You know, got you there. It worked. So, now, just we need to make sure that Ellis is not out for any any extended period of time, so I can right. prove that I cannot do it consistently. Let me do that's it. Right. Just I'll fill in for half of half a show, and that'll do it. So that's it. We're gonna be back. Quick last thoughts. Because again, this will be the one time you get got to watch the tape this week before the seven and three Cleveland Browns take on the Jacksonville Jaguars on Sunday. We'll be right back. Back on got to watch the tape, Doug and Scott. Scott, what's your parting thought as we head into this 11th game of the Browns season? I I guess my parting thought is kind of getting back to Joe Schobert. And I think the Browns are really going to try and target him the way other teams have targeted the area patrolled by BJ Goodson this season. Uh, I think this is a uh, has an opportunity to be kind of a breakout game for for Austin Hooper and, and Harrison Bryant to an extent, especially in the red zone. I think those are two things you should want to watch. I think uh, there are yards to be had there against Schobert. 
Olivier Vernon showed up in a pretty good way on Sunday. Sometimes, again, this always happens that if a guy has a good game, everybody says, well, then, you know, why, why was anyone criticizing him before? And it's like, well, he wasn't quite playing like this before. His PFF overall defensive grade against the Eagles was 86.9. Very good. These were his grades the games before that. 48.3, 53.6, 52.6, 73.3, pretty good, 56.9, 79.6, pretty good, 61.7. He also had a couple games that he missed this year. So that was the best Olivier Vernon grade. It was maybe a lot of bull rush, maybe a lot of, you know, we sort of joke about like, hey, he just runs into the guy and gets stalemated. And I think he ran into the guy against the Eagles and kind of pushed him back a few times. So no Miles Garrett. Again, on Sunday, he'll be out for the second week with COVID-19. They need Olivier Vernon again. We have talked about him on this podcast this season about like, where is he? What's up with this guy? All credit to that guy for showing up. The grade reflected it and they need it. And then they're going to need it when Miles Garrett's back. And I know, I know certainly a chunk of it is the opponent, but some that's, that's part of being a football player is taking advantage of bad opponents. So he did that against the Eagles. He's going to have to do it again against the Jaguars and they're going to need him down the stretch with Miles Garrett back. And if Olivier Vernon's putting up grades in the eighties opposite Miles Garrett, then you're really starting to get something there with two guys getting after the passer. So I'm uh, curious to see if Olivier Vernon can come back with a, a similar type of game on Sunday at Jacksonville. Thanks to you guys for listening. We're thankful that you've made Got to Watch the Tape part of your Browns listening experience. It's the new podcast this year as we just go podcast heavy here at Cleveland.com. We have a lot of people who love to talk, and we're fortunate that we have enough Browns fans out there who love to listen. So, Scott, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Yes, you too. We'll hope that uh, Ellis feels a little better, and we'll bring him back next week, hopefully. But for now, thanks to you guys for listening. Have a great Thanksgiving. We'll catch you on Sunday, Browns versus Jaguars. And thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.